audio. This podcast contains photos of Dr. Weasel's Everest climb. You can view the video of the podcast on Monument Health's YouTube page. Welcome to Doc Talk, a weekly podcast featuring Monument Health physicians addressing medical topics. Tune into your health with Monument Health. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Doc Talk with Monument Health. My name is Mark Houston, and joining me again is Dr. Jacob Weasel, uh, emergency and trauma surgery at Monument Health. Uh, if you remember, uh, Dr. Weasel was on episode six of Doc Talk with us. So if you'd like to go back for the introduction there, uh, we won't go through that again because we've got. M- much more exciting things to talk about right now today. Uh, Glad to have you back, doctor. Yeah, Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Now, the reason why you're in here today, and I know you have been, this this kind of had to have been a whirlwind since the summit with you on May 17th on Mount Everest, right? Right. Yeah. Um, Are you, are you tired of talking about any of this yet? Uh, Well, (laughs) I wouldn't say that I'm tired of talking about it. I think that the most common question that I get is just in passing people asking, how was it? And, you know, after, what a a hard question to answer though. Yeah, exactly. After, after Mm. nearly two months of being in Nepal and going up Everest and coming back down, that's a difficult answer to, yeah. or it's a difficult question to field, you know, because there's so much that goes into that answer. And so to try and distill that down, um, it, it's hard other than to just <laughs> say, you know, it's kind of like a microcosm of life. There's ups and downs, there's sure. good and bad. And uh, overall, the good uh, far outweighs a- any negative aspects of, of the trip. But now, yeah. this was, was this the, was this the uh, kind of the bucket list climb for you? Because I know you've hit some other... Uh, some other big ones already. Yeah. Um, for me, honestly, like there was never any interest in summiting Everest for me going back to when I first got interested in mountaineering and started climbing. Um, I never thought that this would be anything that I would ever do. Really, for me, Denali was probably the height of my interest and ambition in the mountains. And it wasn't until I started looking into it and came across an article about the first black man to summit in Mm -hmm. 2003. And it just got me interested. First black woman, 2006. And it got me interested in looking at who was the first Native American. And after searching for quite a while, I couldn't find anything. I asked others to search and they couldn't find anything. So that's really what got me interested in going. Um, And when I look at it now, you know, there's still plenty of places I'd like to travel, plenty of mountains I'd like to climb. And obviously, nothing, nothing really compares uh, to Everest in terms of the altitude and the risk that you're taking. Um, but I'll certainly continue climbing. There's no doubt about that. Well, it's obviously in your blood. I mean, this is this. And, and after doing something like Everest, how, how could it not be? How, you know, how could that not just constantly be for the next thing? Right. Yeah. And, and I think that, uh, you know, right now I, I would love to continue climbing and go down to Argentina, go to Antarctica, go to Russia and, and continue on the quest to complete the seven summits. I was going to say, is there like a, a, a list of mountains that you climb? So how many of the summits have you hit out of these seven? Yeah. So I was on Denali uh, last summer. Prior to that, I had gone to Kilimanjaro. Um, fell short on Denali by about a thousand or fifteen hundred feet. I think and, we uh, talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. So at, at some point, you know, coming back from being turned around on Denali, um, we're on a stretch called the Autobahn, and I kind of it was the first time I'd ever been turned around on a mountain, and kind of made myself a promise that uh, I would 
I would be one day be the first native to complete all seven summits and the Explorer's Grand Slam, hopefully with the North and South Pole. And my desire was to have Denali be the final summit out of the seven mm-hmm. summits. So hopefully one of these days after all the other six are completed, I'll be able to go back up to Alaska and uh, and stand on that summit. But that's no that's no gimme. I mean, sure. um, the Sherpa that I was with climbing Everest, Lok Badendi and He's, you know, a, a world record holding mountaineer, and he's he's paired with another team of Sherpas that um, are going to Denali, and they got turned back on the mountain this year. They didn't summit Denali. So, um, yeah, you never know what the mountain's going to throw at you, but <laughs> I certainly will, will make it back to Alaska one of these days to try again up there. Excellent. Uh, you, had, you had a quote that I saw that, boy, this, this was this – was, a pretty impactful thing that you said when you were on Everest. You said, you realize so strongly we are not meant to be here. The earth does not want us here. Yeah. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I I remember. Um, so we're on the summit and I had gotten there. And as I'm making my way up to the top, because there were about 20 of us on the summit at that time and people are taking pictures and there's a South African gal there, and I started talking to her, and I had made friends with one of the gals at base camp from South Africa. Her name's Remy, and so I said, are you friends with Remy? And she said, yeah, she's my best friend. So I'm standing on the summit with this gal, and I take my pictures, and I'm, I'm pretty much done at that point, and I go to sit on an ice bench uh, as Lakba, my, my Sherpa's taking pictures, and I sit next to this South African girl that I had a conversation with 10 minutes earlier, and she's freaking out, and she's... She is, you can tell that her anxiety level is through the roof and she's thinking that she's dying and she's telling me my legs are turning blue and I need oxygen and I can tell that she's not in a proper state of mind. Um, So there are two Sherpas there and they get to work switching out her, her bottle of oxygen and they get that switched out. But when you do switch that out, you have to reconnect the valve between there's a hose that goes from the oxygen tank and there's a hose that goes to the regulator to your mask so when they go to connect that the valve is frozen so we can't get the two hoses connected and for about four minutes or so we're up there on the summit and we're trying to get this thing unfrozen and we're blowing on it and we're hitting it and a little bit of condensation just a a little bit uh, of humidity or water had gotten on there and frozen and after four minutes, we finally get the thing reconnected um, between the three of us. And so she got her oxygen. They started down the mountain. And I just remember sitting there thinking, man, like this is this is dumb because <laughs> if it's just it's a little condensation on a valve. Mm-hmm. But if we don't get this thing freed up, then within 10 minutes, she's probably going to be in a coma without any oxygen and within a half an hour she's probably going to be gone right and uh, I remember right after we had gotten that valve uh, unfrozen and hooked back together I looked around and I just thought man we are not supposed to be here this place was not meant for human beings yeah and uh, it was a very surreal feeling um, but yeah, I, I, I remember it distinctly. Did, um, did she know that she was sitting next to a trauma surgeon that, uh, that, that she was probably in good hands maybe at that point? So I don't know. She didn't know that she was next to a trauma surgeon, <laughs> but I did see another guy on the mountain, uh, up on the summit actually. And I had met him hiking, um, down at base camp and we were up on the summit together and he was, 
he was talking to his his Sherpa about how he couldn't feel his fingers anymore. And I looked at his Sherpa and I told him he needs you need to increase the Mm -hmm. flow rate on his oxygen and he needs hydration. So more so than putting on mittens, he needs fluid and he needs oxygen uh, in order to prevent him from getting frostbitten fingers. The cold is certainly the major primary factor in all of that um, and getting some warmth to them is yeah. important, but things that people don't think about are oxygen and hydration. So, and then I, I told him, you know, in my, in my everyday life back at home, I'm, I'm a surgeon. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, I think I remember we were hiking together down at base camp. And oh, um, yeah. so, so anyway, some of it comes in handy every now and then. Well, let's start, let's kind of start on the, on the, on the, on the moment that you get there on a climb like this, right? Sure. Um, how, what happens when, when you, when you pull up for day one? Yeah, day one you fly into Kathmandu mm-hmm. and then you meet up with the rest of the team in Is there always a team? I mean, is there always a set team that you us- go with? Usually. There are very few climbers that and, and I had a friend on the mountain, he's an ER doctor out of Kentucky, but he had climbed just with an individual Sherpa that he developed a relationship with. But I would say ninety nine percent of climbers are going with a team. So you fly in, you meet up with the team, you go through the logistics, you go through the plan. Um, and then from Kathmandu, you fly into Lukla. And that in and of itself has its own risk because it's the most dangerous airport in the world. The The runway is slanted at about 15 degrees or 20 oh degrees, I think, just because it's so narrow and you're landing on the side of a mountain. Um, and so you fly into Lukla and from there it takes about seven days of trekking, hiking, you know, six to eight hours a day to get to Everest Base Camp. So a climb to Everest is not flying in, bussing up to where you start and then heading up the mountain. Yeah, generally not. I mean, this is a, how many days total from day one till you hit the summit is there? Yeah, I left the U.S. on April 10th. I got into Kathmandu on April 12th, and then I summited on May 17th. So it, it was, you know, over a month, a month and a week um, until I was actually able to, to make it to the summit. And a lot of that has to do with weather um, as well as acclimatizing because once you arrive at base camp, you're slowly working your way up the mountain uh, or up through the valley to get to base camp. And base camp sits at, you know, 17,500, anywhere from 17,500 to 18,000 feet. And so it's already 3,000 feet higher than anything in the continental U.S. I was going to say, what could you compare that to even, you know, our highest peak here, of course, Black Elk Peak uh, here in the hills, right? Right. So where, I mean. So at least two a, of those and two, that's, and, a, two that's, and a half. That's at the. at the And the, that's at base camp. At base camp. Yeah. And <laughs> oh, you're talking goodness. about. Four, four and a quarter to four and a half to the summit uh, okay. of Black Elk Peak. How long are you at base so, camp then? Um, so we you arrive and then you're at base camp almost, for most climbers, it would be that entire time from the time that you get to base camp to the time that you summit and then back down the mountain and then, you know, getting back and either trekking out or getting a helicopter out, out of base camp back to Kathmandu. And so you're looking at a month and a half a month to a month and a half. Do you remember uh, from base camp when you were packed and ready and you took those first few steps and you were like, here, we're we, go, here, we, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember. So the, the day before um, there is a traditional ceremony, puja ceremony, which um, is, is essentially their way of asking uh, of, of asking for blessings and safe passage through the mountains. And so you have that the day before 
And then um, you wake up at midnight the, that night and you go get ready and you get something to eat and drink in the tent. And then you head out at midnight to go through the ice fall because traveling in the dark when everything is frozen solid is the safest time because there's least likelihood for for any kind of avalanches uh, to fall through that that ice fall to right. fall through that glacier. Okay. So. What's uh what's a pack like? Um what's what's the weight? What are you carrying with you as you're starting to climb? Yeah, you know, honestly the Sherpas are They're they're doing the work. Amazing. Yeah. And they are I thought that I was fairly fit and strong coming in and I would put on a 40 pound pack and I'd get on a stair stepper for 2 hours and like have no problem doing that. Um and in comparison to those guys, it's night and day. Are, mean, are they so integral to the climb? Absolutely. So I would say there are very few mountaineers in the world that are to the level that they could go up without the assistance of a Sherpa. Wow. Um, they are um, incredibly strong. And, uh, yeah, I think, you know, whether it be just over the generations and the fact that they are accustomed and their physiology is meant to be in those kind of mm-hmm. conditions and in that environment – um, for a multitude of reasons, they, they're amazing in terms of their strength and in terms of their, what they can do on a mountain. Yeah. So yeah, they're, they're integral to yeah. any, any kind of expedition up there. Okay. And they always have been, to be honest. Um, and, and so for my, from my side, my pack is light. I mean, we're talking 20 pounds or less, oh, okay. 20, 30 pounds or less in comparison to some of those guys that are carrying, multiple bottles of oxygen and, you know, carrying other gear that doesn't even belong to them, oftentimes mm-hmm. carrying gear that belongs to the climber that they're serving. Um, and they're, they're taking that stuff up the mountain. So, so you're, you're, you're spending, you, are you sleeping on the way up from base camp till you get to summit? Are there points along the way where you have to literally set up a camp? And Yeah. And, and so those camps are generally already set up and okay and so in our in our case yeah the camp camp one was set up and you have to the higher up you go you have to wait for good weather to clear before the sherpas that are going up the mountain preparing the camps before they actually can get up there and so camp four which is at twenty six thousand feet i mean it took them a while because the winds were so heavy uh this this season um it took a while for them to get camp set up and even when you do at one point, there was a bad windstorm that had uh, basically up, uplifted some of the tents and thrown them into a crevasse. Um, other tents were completely destroyed and gone at Camp 4. And so everything that you do there is really dependent on the weather. But there are four camps on the way up um, prior to the summit push. So smooth sailing all the way up? Or were there moments where? Yeah, definitely not. I think I, I, I saw in 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 one of the articles that I want you to to kind of uh, talk about here uh, is a very close call. Apparently, you had with a rock. Yeah, so um, got struck by a rock coming struck from, by the rock. Yeah, coming from Camp Two to Camp Three, and so Camp Two is at about twenty. 22,000 feet, maybe a little bit higher than that, depending on where, where they place the camp. And then, um, you know, Camp 3, 23,000 uh, on the cusp of 24 sometimes. Um, but when you approach Camp 3, there's there's something called the Lhotse Face. And so Lhotse is the fourth highest mountain in the world. It's just to the south of Mount Everest. 
And the face of that mountain, which you have to go up in order to get to the high camp on Everest, um, it's it's pretty much all ice. And it's a pretty steep vertical face. And there are these rock outcroppings that sit, you know, several thousand feet above where you're climbing. And if somebody's up there climbing and their their boot basically knocks off a rock, um, that rock isn't going to stop until it reaches the bottom of the mountain. Just because of the ice. I mean, it's going to f- yeah. slide all the way down there. Yeah, exactly. Because it's so steep and because it's nothing, essentially, it's nothing but ice. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when, you, when you're tra- talking about blue ice, this is different than what most other people experience, whether you're in Colorado or whether you're in the Pacific Northwest. And people, you know, you know ice, but blue ice is a little, it's different. And it would be like taking an ice skating rink and just putting it at 50 or 60 degrees and trying to go up that. And even with crampons you know you got 10 knives on the bottom of your boots even with that they it's so easy to slide off of this ice and to to lose purchase Mm -hmm. and so you know if a rock comes off it's basically sliding down and it gathers speed and sometimes they're passing by you and they're going 50 or 60 miles an hour and i remember we're just approaching camp you know the lotse face working our way up to camp three and I hear Lakpa, my my Sherpa, just yell, rock, rock, rock. And occasionally on the way, you know, as you're approaching it, you'll hear other climbers. They're yelling out when stuff's falling down so that you can hopefully avoid it. Um, and I looked up when I when I heard his voice and I saw a rock. And then the next thing I knew is like it was like seeing a fastball come at you standing at a in a batter's box. And the next thing I knew, it hit me in the chest, it struck me in the left chest um probably racquetball size rock that was oh, going wow. you know 60 miles an hour or so um knew enough in the moment to know that i hadn't didn't feel like i broke any ribs definitely hurt a bit <laughs> um didn't have didn't have a summit suit on i had a pretty light down jacket and what's then, a, what's a summit suit so a summit suit uh, it's it's essentially what you would take from camp three and higher to protect you against the elements got and it so okay it's basically from head to toe, one giant, usually either Gore-Tex or, or some water-resistant fabric with down inside. Okay. And it, it's, it's basically there to protect you from anything that is thrown at you, um, whether it's 70-mile-an-hour winds or, you know, 50 below, 60 below temperatures. Yeah. Able to withstand any of that stuff. Okay. And so I didn't have a summit suit on. I just had a light puffy coat and a sweatshirt on and so struck me in the left chest definitely hurt but at that point you know it is what it is and you gather yourself and you just keep moving well it's very lucky probably that that's where it struck you though yeah i mean absolutely. if it could have been in the head or yeah and, and honestly whether it's that or whether it's things that happen higher up on the summit when i'm hallucinating um you don't in the moment, you don't think about them and the potential risk that it is or the immediate sure. threat that it is to your life. And it really wasn't until I came down off the mountain that you're sitting there thinking about it and, and you think, well, if that rock was about a foot higher and four inches to the right, yep. it could have crushed my trachea or it could have hit me in the mid face and we would be in a bad oh, situation. Um, oh. So luckily, none of that happened. And I got struck in the chest, which is 
better than other places that it could have hit me. Well, did you get a picture of the cool bruise on it, though? <laughs> no, man. At that <laughs> point. Like, look what that happened there. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. <laughs> honestly, at that point, you aren't changing clothes for, right, yeah. for seven days. So uh, other than me looking at it, that was about it. Uh, so There is also an area uh, on Everest uh, that you reference that is known as the death zone. Yeah. That apparently you spent a little too much time in. Yeah, so I got back. Um, I got back to Kathmandu uh, after summiting, and I was in the Marriott at the restaurant, and I was calculating how much time I had spent up there at Camp Four and higher. And the first time that I calculated it, I thought I have lost a certain number of brain cells, and there's no way I'm not thinking correctly. And I knew at that point in time, you know, my recovery. I hadn't fully recovered, and so yeah. I, th- I thought, I'm not thinking straight. I'll just, I'll think about it tomorrow. And the next day I remember calculating it again and it was the same number. And so 63 hours is what I had calculated the amount of time that I had spent what at 26,000 and higher. That's what they consider the death zone. Yeah, How exactly. long are you supposed to be in it? So normally recommendation would be less than 24 hours. Okay, you blew right past that then. Yeah, so <laughs> right underneath, you know, three days almost in the death zone. And why, why do you think you were in there that long? So I know know exactly why. Um, Got into camp, and when we were heading from Camp 3 to Camp 4, which Camp 3 is, you know, right at 23, 24,000 feet, and Camp 4 is at 26, and it's from there that you would make your summit push. And normally you would go into Camp 4 in the early afternoon or evening, and you would rest for just a few hours, get something to eat, and then you would push for the summit that night. And as we're, we were making our way from Camp 3 to Camp 4, we got hit with some really terrible weather. And so, you know, it started blowing. When we're making our way around this rock outcropping called the Geneva Spur, um, it starts blowing 60, 70 miles an hour. And you're getting hit with ice. And I see people laying on the ground, covering their face, trying to get out of the elements and, you know, get out of the – just not be exposed to what's happening. Mm-hmm. Because when that ice is hitting your face, it's like being in a sandblaster. Yeah. And so after two hours of that, we finally get to Camp 4, got in the tent. And uh, Lakba, my Sherpa, and I, we looked at each other and we just shook our heads like, there's no way that five hours from now we're, or six hours from now we're, that we're pushing for the summit. Um, so he turned off his radio and we got something to eat. We laid down and we fell asleep. And at 1130... Uh, Nims, who is the expedition leader, he pops his head in the tent and he says, get up, we're going. And I just, it's still blowing 60 miles an hour. (laughs) So I just said, I don't, I don't think that this is, uh, the conditions are terrible. I don't think that this is safe. And, uh, I know that we have six bottles of oxygen on one bottle. I can get 40 hours at my current flow rate. Mm -hmm. So I just said, I'm going to take a rest day and I'm going to summit tomorrow and there are plenty. There are two other guide services that do this as their strategy for summit. So you know, he we had a disagreement. He took the thirteen climbers, the other thirteen climbers. There were fourteen of us that arrived, and he took the thirteen up that night. And it was difficult conditions, high winds. Two rescues were necessary, oh, not boy. from our team, but from others. Um, and yeah, it was a tough. It was a tough go. And the next day, you know, I took a rest day. So the next day um, we rested, we ate, we hydrated. um, And then we woke up the next night at 930 and popped our heads out of the tent. And it was perfect. It was 
you know, clear skies, stars everywhere, no wind. And more people summited, I believe, more people summited the day that I went than on any other day during oh, the entire season. So really? So it ended up being a good call. Mm, uh, absolutely. And we made it up to the top. But because of that delay, um, as well as the fact that I was slated to climb Lhotse the next day, uh, we ended up spending 63 hours oh, up there boy. at Camp 4 or higher. That's amazing. So, uh, You mentioned uh, earlier, you mentioned something about hallucinations. Yeah. Um, is that common in uh, climbing something like this? You know, a lot of people, I don't feel... I didn't get a chance to talk to a lot of the climbers that I was with about these things afterwards. And I think most people, by and large, would keep these things, keep them to themselves. And mm -hmm. it's just stories that are shared among friends. Sure. Um, not not common, though. Okay. And so looking at that, I, I had auditory hallucinations on the way up and I had visual hallucinations on the way down. So on the way up, I'm hearing voices coming from behind me, Ooh. and it sounds, it's the voices of friends and other climbers. So there's this Ukrainian gal that we had become friends. Her name's Anna, and I hear her behind me saying, yeah, that's my friend Jacob. He's right there. And I hear a friend named Aldo Kane uh, behind me saying, Jacob, mate, he's a former UK Special Forces, amazing dude. Um, but I hear these voices, and I think in my mind, Nims lied to me. <laughs> they didn't summit. They're behind me, and we're all going up together. Oh, wow. And it wasn't until I got to the summit that I realized that these voices were all in my head because they weren't behind me at all. And, uh, you know, I didn't think much of it. And then on the way down, looking at their rock outcroppings mm -hmm. kind of all the way down, and I'm looking at rock outcroppings, and seeing the faces of my children and my wife come out of the rocks. And at the moment, I'm not thinking that this is some degree of cerebral edema or some degree of hypoxic brain injury from lack of oxygen. I just thought, hmm, it's kind of interesting. Well, was it, was it, was it a pleasant experience, uh, you know, or, or, or were there moments like, wait a minute, hmm. You know, I'm a yeah, doctor. I, never, I understand this, but I never. It, it was never ominous. Sure. Um, it, for me, it was just uh, an acknowledgement that hmm, like that's interesting. Right. And then the next thing you're thinking about is taking the next step down. Okay. And so you're honestly too focused on the task at hand for things to fully register. And to be honest, like to some degree, your mental capacity and just just your ability to think outside of the immediate task at hand, it's definitely hindered to some extent yeah. up there. Um, so I never had this feeling like uh, I was close to death, although in retrospect, like I'm sure there were many times at sure. which my body was pushed to a position where, yeah, I, I could have been close to death and just unaware of it. But at you're the time. so in the moment, like you said. I mean, yeah. you have to be within just those seconds all the time, right? Right, exactly. Um, I, I know another uh, very curious issue that a lot of people will reference when talking about Everest is the uh, the bodies that you find on Everest that are used as landmarks. Sure. Did you come across some of those? Yeah, I mean, you you cross. This is another thing that you don't anticipate. Um, oh, I, yeah. Because I've climbed mountains before, and I understand, you know, I understand in my mind what the climb entails. You you go from camp two to three to four to summit. Um, but what you don't anticipate, especially on an 8,000-meter peak or on Everest in particular, is the thousand ways in which death is ever present on a mountain like that. And so that close contact with, 
with death and with your own mortality. That's something that I didn't really anticipate. Um, and, and it's really difficult to prepare for something like that. Um, I, I remember on the way up and on the way down seeing seeing bodies that have been mm-hmm. there for years and seeing bodies that were alive, you know, 30 hours prior oh, to no. the time that I'm right. seeing them. And uh, and so, yeah, that's one of the one of the things that you don't really anticipate um, having to deal with. Uh, but it's definitely up there. Once you took that last step on the summit, do you do you remember the feeling what washed over you when you realized oh my god <laughs> yeah i'm we made, here made it to the top yeah of the world. yeah yeah it was uh honestly like privileged feeling i felt gratitude and i felt a deep sense of privilege because before i had left uh there's a medicine man lives down on pine ridge does some work here in rapid his name's rick two dogs he's been a medicine okay. man yeah. for decades and so um, I got a chance to meet with Rick before I left for Nepal and he had blessed an eagle feather in ceremony and we got lunch together and he just, he gifted me with this eagle feather and he just said, listen, uh, as a Lakota man, all that we've experienced, just indigenous people in general and Lakota people in particular over the past several centuries for all the injustices and for all of the pain and suffering, uh, I want you to take this as a symbol of our people to the top of the world as a symbolic gesture of us being able to rise above everything that has happened over the past three That's centuries. That's amazing. And so that was, you know, being able to do that. And that that feather was on my pack the entire way up. And then, you know, I took it off my pack. And there's a pole that sits right there on the summit um, at the, the top of the world. Nothing's higher than it. And um, was able to, to put it on the pole. And, it, you know, it's still there to this day. Um, and so to be able to do that was, was an honor for me. And to be honest, I... I you're so focused and maybe this is just my mentality, but um, the job at that point is only half done because getting up isn't (laughs) getting up is the goal, but getting down is the bigger goal. And so I realized at that moment, like we're only halfway done at this point Um, and focusing on getting down. I mean, you take your pictures and it's amazing. Honestly, watching sunrise as you're climbing the summit ridge and Mm -hmm. seeing the pyramid of Everest projected onto the Khumbu Valley. You know, you look to your right and you're you're watching the sunrise over China and you look to your left and you see the perfect pyramid uh, of Everest that's being projected onto this valley. And it's amazingly beautiful. It's beyond words. Um, And, you know... you're seeing mountain peaks that on your entire trek up were these giant peaks <laughs> that just seemed so big that they couldn't, you couldn't imagine anybody climbing these things. And I remember looking down at a peak that I watched the entire way coming to Everspace Camp, and it seemed so far away and so small and so far below us that it just, it, the perspective is. Is pretty crazy when uh, when you everything is below you. Do everything you ever, in the world. Do you ever think you'll experience something like that again? Um, not that in particular. Uh, but I'm sure something similar mm-hmm. to that. I I certainly hope so because yeah. that sort of feeling. Um, well, it's undescribable almost, isn't it? Yeah, and it's really what 
drives me to the mountains again and again. I remember having a similar experience on Denali when you're stuck in hurricane force winds. Yeah. You can't see 20 feet in front of you. And I wanted to keep going. And it was probably a good call that we turned back because we would have been 12 hours in right. those conditions. And there would probably be a 50-50 chance that I would have gotten some sort of frostbite. <sighs> um, but to experience the ferocity and just this awe-inspiring force of nature yeah. that is as awe-inspiring as it is terrifying, um, experiences like that are kind of what draw me <laughs> sure. draw me in <laughs> to, to doing things like this. Now, with, you know, being the, the, the first documented Native American to climb Mount Everest, right, um, do you, is this accomplishment, is this something that you think can, can, can resonate now with like the indigenous communities around here for sure. Are you, are you, are you using this to, you know, to, 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 to help, to educate? Right. Yeah. So that was my whole goal to begin with. Um, when I sat down and I sat down with my kids and my wife and I just said, and even after the climb, I, I had a good friend that unfortunately he, this is his second attempt and he didn't summit. And I, I just said, you know, after all that I have experienced, Looking at that mountain, it makes sense for me in my mind. If somebody wants to climb that, climbing it for a purpose bigger than yourself makes sense to me. But climbing it for your own glory, fame and recognition, just it doesn't make a whole lot of mm -hmm. sense to me because of the risks that are involved in that. Um, for me, the, the purpose was always uh, to inspire others, to, to show that if you have perseverance and you have grit and determination and a will to do something and achieve something, no matter what it is in life, um, that, that you're capable. And to Native kids in particular, who oftentimes grow up in, you know, situations that it, it seems hopeless or it seems like certain goals and dreams are insurmountable, just to show them that regardless of where they come from and their background, no matter who they are, um, they're equally capable as anybody else to achieve whatever they want in life. And I shared this with a, a group of high school students, underserved students that uh, are interested in medicine recently. And I just, I shared the story of my father and just said, you know, from there was a, there was a boy that was given away at birth and, you know, given to a dysfunctional family, started giving his first sip of alcohol when he was five years old, dropped out of school in the seventh grade. And um, for him to turn his life around and have a son that later becomes a surgeon and becomes the first native person to climb Mount Everest. Like, what are the chances of that happening? And if that can happen in our family, then why can't it happen in yours? Yeah. And so, yeah, hopefully when we're back in school in the fall, be able to to go into the schools and talk with kids and just um, offer hope and inspiration that whatever they want to do in life, you know, they're, they're able to do it. That's about the perfect message for this. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, how does your uh, how does your wife feel about you doing stuff like this? Well, <laughs> in all honesty, if she were here, she would tell you she she's not happy. <laughs> she's not super excited yeah. about it. Um, well, that had to be so nerve wracking for her, though. Yeah, I absolutely. Mean, oh I mean, boy. I don't I don't know if there are any wives out well, there right. that yeah. would be super excited about. Did, did she ever 
want to join you on anything like that? Not not the Everest and the Denali's, but does she have an interest in I think the, going the smaller to Nepal, ones, Black Elk Peak? Maybe. Well, and I th- <laughs> I think for her, um, the cultural experience going to Nepal. Yeah, so one of there, the things that would be amazing. Yeah, I think it's an it's a beautiful country filled with beautiful people, and that culture is just amazing. Did she go with you? Did she did. Oh, she didn't. Okay. No, she was at home with the kids. So our kids are right. you know 16, 14, oh, and twelve yes. now, and okay. so they were in school, but. Um, you know, as part of the expedition, you know, I started a nonprofit looking to raise money to build a playground for kids over at Lakota Homes. And then one of the other things is uh, wanting to build clinics, health clinics in rural Nepal uh, for women and children. And so, you know, if we're able to ultimately make that happen and see that see that come into reality, I would love to take my family back and, uh, and take them out to the clinics and just let them experience right. some of some of the things. Not not everything on the mountain because, you know, that pain and suffering, if it's voluntary, <laughs> then that's great. <laughs> yeah, right. But I wouldn't want to and I certainly want to wouldn't want to drag my kids up oh, to up Lord. to Everest. But so then uh, what, what's next? What's going to be the next one on the list? Yeah, I, you know this this coming uh, January, I'd either I'd love to be either in Antarctica okay. or Argentina. Uh, most likely, be in Argentina climbing Aconcagua. Okay, so that's the highest mountain in South America. Is that one of the seven? That's one of the okay. seven. Yeah, it's um, you know twenty two thousand eight hundred feet, I think, something like that. Oh, and so, you know, it's it's high. It's the second highest of the seven summits, but in reality, it's basically at camp two on everest and so That's crazy. um yeah hopefully be able to make it down to argentina in january and and from there uh we'll see it all just depends on whether my wife gives me permission <laughs> That's right. so uh well let's uh let, let's talk then again when you get back from that one okay yeah, i would love to uh dr jacob weasel uh with monument health thank you for this conversation yeah this has been a lot of fun and i can't wait to to, to hear about the next adventure man appreciate Absolutely. it thank you Doc Talk with Monument Health is recorded live at Homeslice Studios, hosted by Mark Houston, edited by Russ Hatton, engineered by Chris Jaquis, and produced by Kelsey Kinney and Rob Henry.